0: Good morning, everybody. I hope you had a great time over the holiday season. It's New Year's Eve today and thanks for coming in to take in our online service. Hopefully Christmas was good and perhaps you're able to see some family. And uh, But hopefully you didn't have too many awkward conversations. Uh, sometimes that can happen when you go and visit some distant relatives. There's usually someone who wants to talk about politics and, uh, well, you know that's not going anywhere good. Uh, there's usually someone who has a plan for your life. Uh, when are you going to get married? Or are you guys going to have kids? Should you be eating that? Uh, but I hope you did have some good conversations and maybe you even picked up on some uh, good conspiracy theories about Joe Biden being a robot. So in light of those examples, hopefully today's discussion is a breath of fresh air. We're picking up on our series, The Way of the Kingdom. We paused in December to pay attention to Advent. And today we're picking up where we left off. A short recap. We've been discussing that the way of the kingdom of God is about relational righteousness, treating one another in a Christ-like way, and that it all stems from the heart. We've looked at how God is looking for an inner, heart-centric posture that loves God and neighbor and even our enemies, and our most recent discussion was on the nature of secrecy and practicing our righteousness. When we give money to the poor, when we pray, when we fast, we should not do it to be seen by others, but trust that God sees what is hidden and rewards us in his way. So today we'll be talking about money. Uh, It can be a little awkward to discuss money, especially in church. Um, But today we're not talking so much specifically about money, but about the accumulation of possessions and about craving for more and more. Uh, We've got a stuff issue in our culture. If you have a garage, I'd take a guess that you probably can't park your car in it because of stuff. Um, We have a hard time getting rid of our stuff. We can have a hard time resisting acquiring more stuff. Um, I know that might hit close to home after Christmas. Uh, sorry, not sorry, but um, Jesus addresses addresses this in today's section. So let's read it together in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For your treasure is there; your heart will be also What do I love? Jesus says we shouldn't store up treasure, things that we uh, value, things that we uh, attribute value to, and he, Jesus specifically addresses three things that the world would treasure. So the first one is our, our clothing. Uh, don't store yourselves things that moths can destroy. Uh, having nice clothes and garments was and still is a noticeable way to tell someone's level of wealth. Uh, there's many stories in the Bible about the level of someone's expensive clothing showing how they're wealthy or have a high status Um, this can also be true today second thing he warns about storing up is food storages that rats mice vermin can deplete Um, the third thing he talks about are valuables like gold and jewels other expensive possessions that you know they didn't have banks or safes in those days so people would bury them in their house or hide them in their house which was probably made of clay or mud And thieves could dig in and and steal them easily. this is a biblical theme, not storing up wealth. You know, we think of manna in the wilderness uh, for Moses and the people of Israel. They received it daily and they were warned not to store up more and more of it because it would spoil overnight. Jesus in the Lord's prayer told his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread as an encouragement to trust God with each day's needs. We don't need to store up uh, because God will meet our needs daily. But of course, there are also instructions in the scriptures about being wise and preparing for the future. Joseph in Egypt stored up grain to save the people from starvation, and the Proverbs regularly praise the wise who prepare for the future. So Jesus' command isn't really uh, about not saving up for retirement or not saving up for a rainy day, but rather the warning is that anything that we can store up on this earth is temporary. It will wear out, be destroyed, pass on to someone else. There's a story about a rich guy who had three friends and he wanted to take his money with him. So he got one friend, a third of his money, another friend, a third, and another friend, a third. And he said, put it in my casket when they bury me. So the first friend went to the casket and thought, you know what? He's not going to need this. I'm going to keep some of it. And so he pocketed some of the cash. Second friend, same thing, went to the casket and thought, you know, I've got some big expenses. He wouldn't mind if I kept some. And the third friend, seeing this, was indignant. And he said, you guys, how can you steal his money? You agreed to give it to him. His dying wishes, you're not fulfilling. And so, self-righteously, he walked up to the casket and put in a personal check for the full amount and walked away. (laughs) So the old saying is true, you can't take it with you when you go. When we talk about earthly treasures, what are we talking about? We're not just talking about material possessions or wealth, but it can be things that we treasure like a relationship. Uh, a business, another person, our personal security, uh, our family, our social status. These are also temporary and not ultimate. So rather than storing up treasures that won't last, Jesus says we should store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. You know, in contrast to earthly treasures, heavenly treasures are lasting. They're permanent. Um, But what really is treasure in heaven? What are we talking about? I want to look at two ways we can think about treasure in heaven that are just insufficient. The first one is that it's the same kind of riches we have on earth, but we just have them in heaven. Um, You know, you have an image of a heavenly Scrooge McDuck. Sorry, if you're under 30, you don't know who that is, but diving through a vault of gold coins and swimming in all the money. You know, we sing some lovely songs about golden palaces on a hilltop or having golden crowns and streets paved with gold in heaven. These are all images we see in scripture, it's all good. But, but in this idea, we imagine that treasure in heaven is just basically earthly treasures having a location in heaven. But I don't know if that really resonates with Jesus' teaching. Does it follow that if we do good and share on earth, then we'll get to be greedy and hoard wealth in heaven. It doesn't really make sense. So these are good images, but when we interpret them literalistically, they're deficient. And I I think they lack imagination and an understanding of what true heavenly treasures are. The second bad idea, I think, is the idea of accumulating blessings of heaven on earth, that God gives us earthly treasures because of our generosity or obedience. Uh, This is often referred to as the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, and it says, if you do such and such, you give money, you obey God, then God has promised to bless those people. So he has to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, and if it hasn't happened yet, it means you just need to keep on giving the, the blessings around the corner. Just send us another check. Uh, this is an abuse of leadership. It's an abuse of spiritual authority. And it's really a misrepresentation of the biblical teaching on blessing. Uh, They usually apply Old Testament promises that were given to the people of Israel about the promised land and and then they universalize them for everyone everywhere. If you do this, you will get that. And Deuteronomy and Proverbs often follow this kind of formula. But it's important to remember that the Bible interprets itself. So we got to remember there's Job, there's Jesus, there's the suffering servant of Isaiah, uh, the psalmist who cries, why did the innocent suffer and the guilty prosper? Those who suffer even though they're righteous. So this kind of teaching is prone to massive abuse at the expense of the poor, and it usually ignores Jesus' teaching on money in favor of some Old Testament promises about material blessing. I don't think anybody ever got rich by giving away money to a TV evangelist, but plenty of TV evangelists got rich. So rather, we see a much different picture in the New Testament about the nature of true heavenly treasures. Uh, Later on in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus told a rich young man to go and sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to do good, be rich in good deeds, and generous and willing to share. In this way you will lay up treasures for the coming age. So according to the New Testament, treasures in heaven is directly related to what we give. Uh, It's not about one day attaining a personal wealth, whether here on earth or in heaven. Uh, It's about blessing. It's about releasing it's about not grasping or attaining or holding on to something it's investing into an invisible kingdom it's hidden and this is what makes it really difficult the rewards are often hidden and secret and jesus teaches us that what you can see and what you can lay your hands on these are going to pass away but if you take these things and hold them loosely if you bless others with them you're going to gain what you can't see or lay your hands on but they're something that can never be taken. They're they're lasting forever. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Money is alluring. It can trap us. You know, the the actor Jim Carrey says, I think everyone should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. I think those are wise words. Uh, Ronald Slider, in his book, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger, talks about The dynamic of how more than a third of the world lives on a couple dollars a day. And if your household makes over $100,000 a year, you're in the top 10% of affluent people in the world. Sider says, One of the most astounding things about the affluent minority is that we honestly think we have barely enough to survive in modest comfort. In the U.S., more money is spent on advertising than on all our public institutions of higher education. And he says, The most demonic part of advertising is that at... It attempts to persuade us that material possessions will bring joy and fulfillment. Um, the sad thing is that data shows the richer the nations become, the less generous they become. As foreign aid donations have decreased over the decades, military spending has increased exponentially, especially after September 11th. In 2003, the level of global military spending was 14 times more than the aid given to developing countries. I hope the same is not true of us as individuals, that the more money we have at our disposal, the less generous we become with it. Does our generosity increase at the same rate as our income? If not, we may have begun to be deceived by our wealth. I'm convinced that if you want to ruin someone's life, just give them a whole bunch of money at one time. Uh, Scripture teaches that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil and evidence is in the young rich rock stars who overdose the, the trail of broken relationships and holiday in Hollywood. And you know, we just see that when we put our hope in money, we we find ourselves trusting on an empty promise. First <clears throat> Timothy six seventeen says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that, not, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. We're not to become arrogant upon our hope and wealth, but rather be rich in doing good, being rich in good deeds, generous and willing to share. This creates a firm foundation for the coming age. It gives us access to God's life, the life that is truly life. What is the true treasure? The life that is truly life. The promise of money that gives us is a mirage. It's a vapor. It's not true life. Our hearts, biblically speaking, are the center of our being. The driving force under the hood, so to speak. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, James K. Smith talks about how what we treasure could be said to be what we love. And what we love is the direction of what we believe to be the good life. You know, if we love money, then we believe... That having lots of money is a part of the good life. If we love other people, we believe that relationships are a part of the good life. Uh, if we love being praised by others, we believe that having a high social status is a part of the good life. What kinds of things do we think of when we think of the good life? This is a key to understanding what we really love. We've got to ask ourselves, what do I really love? What vision of the good life do I ascribe to? What drives me? We're given to all kinds of messaging around this. At the mall, we're implicitly told that the good life looks like the models and mannequins on display. These images of perfection with no apparent concerns, just effortless beauty and appeal. You know, at a sporting event, as the flag and the the national anthem are accompanied by military imagery, we're told the good life looks like winning over our enemies, uh, achieving a, a national identity forged through blood sacrifice, as James Smith talks about. In advertising, film, and pornography, we're told that the good life looks like having sex with whoever we want. These visions and others run counter to the grain of the gospel's vision of the good life. The world's vision of the good life revolves around personal aggrandizement, accumulation, whether material or non-material. But the gospel's vision has more to do with what can be done for others, for God, through us, through our belongings, our resources, for the benefit of others, both inside and outside of our own tribe, including our enemies. Do not love the world or anything in the world, 1 John says. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life doesn't come from the Father. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So the second question we need to ask ourselves is, how are my eyes? The next part of this passage says that the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So what we see when we look at the world around us reveals a lot about us. It's like an inkblot, Rorschach test. You know, a psychologist holds up this inkblot test to find out what that patient sees in it. And the patient says, how did you get so many pictures of my disapproving father-in-law? Uh, ancient understanding of the eye was like a lamp that illuminates the whole body. If the lamp is working, there's light inside the house. If the lamp is not working, or unhealthy, the house is full of darkness. And the Greek word that Jesus used for healthy implies generosity. And the Greek word he uses for unhealthy implies stinginess. So, here we see the connection between our love, our treasuring, and our eyes. The desires of the flesh, the desires of our eyes, the pride in our riches. When we see something we want, we see someone who has it all and we envy them. We see and we desire and we want others to see us. We've got to pay attention to the way we see. Are we seeing generously? Are we seeing in a stingy way? The way we look at things affects our heart. So we've asked, what do I love and how are my eyes? The third question you want to ask is, who will I serve? Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You know, we all have various loyalties. Me personally, I'm a Canadian citizen. I'm from the Langarud family. Uh, I'm an ordained minister with Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. I'm an Amazon Prime member. I am an Edmonton Oilers fan, but ultimately I'm a follower of Christ. So all my other loyalties, all my other allegiances must come under this one, my loyalty to Christ. And the slave terminology we see in scripture, this indentured servitude in the ancient world was common. And slaves would often live with their master, be closely familiar with the goings on of their house and family, and spend large portions of their lives with them. Their allegiance was to them, to their master's household. But not only would they be required to spend their lives working for the benefit of their masters, their masters were required to provide for the needs of their servants. This servant-master metaphor, it's an unappealing idea today, but it was a common thing in the ancient world. And it's used in the New Testament to say, we can be a slave to sin or we can be a slave to righteousness. We can be a slave to our flesh or a slave to God. Jesus taught we can only serve money or God, not both at the same time. And it's assumed here that we're going to serve something. The God of money is not a kind master. But the father that Jesus reveals is a benevolent father we can trust. We don't have to hoard, you know? We don't have to store up in case one day we don't have enough. Ultimately, God is our reward, our heavenly treasure. Psalm 73, the psalmist says, why do the evil prosper and the innocent suffer? This question we've all thought of, but he's reminded that they will receive their due. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh, my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When we see the unrighteous prosper, remember their riches are temporary. When we see the unrighteous prosper, remember that God is our portion forever. The reward of heaven is not more stuff on earth or more stuff in heaven our reward is Christ the life that is truly life our reward is God and Jesus demonstrated this to us he became poor for our sake he became nothing he be, he took on the very nature of a servant and gave himself up to death on a cross he for God so loved the world that he gave this was Jesus' example. And as we follow him, as we imitate him, we're transformed by him into his likeness. This is the life that is truly life, becoming like Jesus, walking with God here on earth and in heaven forever. And so we ask ourselves, what do I love? Where am I putting my hope? Something that's going to be gone in a generation. How are my eyes? Where... Where am i looking and how am i seeing the world around me do i see things through a lens of scarcity and stinginess or do i see things through the lens of a god who's benevolent and gives everything for my benefit and we ask who or what will i serve what kind of master do i want to serve will it be my possessions will it be my anxieties or having enough Or will I serve this God who gave himself for me, this God who poured out blessing, who pours out constantly the love of God into our hearts, provision and kindness and goodness, this God who knows all of my needs before I even ask? I want to encourage you to put your hope in God. Give your heart to Jesus who gave his all for you. There's more than enough in him. He is more than enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your kindness. We thank you that there is treasure in heaven and you are that treasure, that you provide for all of our needs, that we don't need to store up and worry, but we can trust you with the things that we have in our hands, that therefore are good and the good of others around us. We have enough. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be generous, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to use our wealth to lift others out of their poverty, that you'd help us to store up treasure in heaven through our our giving to your invisible kingdom, to the poor and the needy, those who are going without God, that we would experience the joy of working with you in creating a new world. Help us with this, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Hope you have a great New Year's Eve. 2024 is going to be awesome. We'll see you soon. God bless you.